Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. Either tell me where thou hast been, or I will not open my lips so wide as a bristle may enter in, way of thy excuse. My lady will hang thee for thy absence. Ah, let her hang me. He that is well hanged in this world needs to fear no color. Make that good. He shall see none to fear. A good Lenten answer. I can tell thee where that saying was born of, I fear no colors. Where, good Mistress Mary? In the wars, and that may you be bold to say in your foolery. Well, God give them wisdom that have it, and those that are fools, let them use their talents. Yet you will be hanged for being so long absent, or to be turned away. Is not that as good as a hanging for you? Ah, many a good hanging prevents a bad marriage, and for turning away, let summer bear it out. You are resolute, then? Uh, not so neither, but I am resolved on two points. That if one breaks, the other will hold, or if both break, your gaskins fall. Ah, apt. In good faith, very apt. Well, go thy way. If Sir Toby would leave drinking, thou wert as witty a piece of Eve's flesh as any in Illyria. Oh, peace, you rogue. No more of that. Here comes my lady... Make your excuse wisely. You were best. Wit, and be thy will, put me into good fooling. Those wits that think they have thee do very oft prove fools, and I am sure I lack thee. I may pass for a wise man, for what says Canapolis? Better a witty fool than a foolish wit. Ah, God bless thee, lady. Take the fool away. Uh, do you not hear, fellows? Take away the lady. Go to, you're a dry fool. I'll know more of you. Besides, you grow dishonest. Uh, two faults, Madonna, that drink and good counsel will amend. For give the dry fool drink, then is the fool not dry. Bid the dishonest man mend himself. If he mend, he is no longer dishonest. If he cannot, let the botcher mend him. Anything that's mended is but patched. Virtue that uh, transgresses, but patched with sin, and sin amends patched with virtue. If that this simple syllogism will serve so, if it will not, what remedy? As there is no true cuckold, but 
Calamity, so beauty is a flower. The lady bade take away the fool, therefore I say again, take her away. Sir, I bade them take away you. Miss Prision in the highest degree. Lady, cuculus non facet manachum. That's as much to say as I wear not motley in my brain. Good Madonna, give me leave to prove you a fool. Can you do it? Dexterously, good Madonna. Make your proof. I must catechize you for it, Madonna. Good my mouse of virtue, answer me. Well, sir, for want of other idleness, I'll bide your proof. Good Madonna, why mournest thou? Good fool, for my brother's death. I think his soul is in hell, Madonna. I know his soul is in heaven, fool. Now the more fool, Madonna, to mourn for your brother's soul being in heaven. Take away the fool, gentlemen. What think you of this fool, Malvolio? Doth he not mend? Yes, and shall do till the pangs of death shake him. Infirmity that decays the wise doth ever make thee better fool. God send you, sir, a speedy infirmity, for the better increasing your folly. Sir Toby will be sworn that I am no fox, but he will not pass his word for twopence that you are no fool. How say you to that, Malvolio? I marvel that your ladyship takes delight in such a barren rascal. I saw him put down the other day with an ordinary fool that has no more brain than a stone. Look you now, he's out of his guard already. Unless you laugh and minister occasion to him, he is gagged. I protest. I take these wise men that crow so at these set kind of fools no better than the fool's zanies. You are sick of self-love, Malvolio, and taste with a distempered appetite. To be generous, guiltless, and of free disposition is to take those things for bird bolts that you deem cannon bullets. There is no slander in an allowed fool, though he do nothing but rail, nor no railing in a known discreet man, though he do nothing but reprove. Now Mercury endue thee with leasing, for thou speakest well of fools. Madam, there is at the gate a young gentleman much desires to speak with you. From the Count Orsino, is it? I know not, madam. Tis a fair young man, and well attended. Who of my people hold him in delay? Sir Toby, madam, your kinsman. Fetch him off, I pray you. He speaks nothing but madman. Fie on him. Go you, Malvolio. If it be a suit from the Count, I am sick, or not at home. What you will to dismiss it. Now you see, sir, how your fooling grows old, and people dislike it. Thou hast spoke for us, Madonna, as if thy eldest son should be a fool, whose skull Jove cram with brains, for here he comes. One of thy kin has a most weak pia matter. <sighs> By mine honor, half drunk. What is he at the gate, cousin? Uh, a gentleman. A gentleman? What gentleman? There's a gentleman here. Uh, a plague of these pickle herring. How now, Sot? Good Sir Toby Belch. Cousin, cousin, how have you come so early by this lethargy? Lechery? I defy lechery. There's one at the gate. Aye, Mary, what is he? Let him be the devil, and he will. I care not. Give me faith, say I will. It's all one. What's a drunken man like, fool? Like a drowned man, a fool and a madman. One draught above heat makes him a fool, 
The second mads him, and a third drowns him. Go thou and seek the crowner, and let him sit in my cuz, for he's in the third degree of drink. He's drowned. Go, look after him. He is but mad yet, Madonna, and the fool shall look to the madman. Madam, yon young fellow swears he will speak with you. I told him you were sick. He takes it on him to understand so much, and therefore comes to speak with you. I told him you were asleep. He seems to have a foreknowledge of that too, and therefore comes to speak with you. What is to be said to him, lady? He's fortified against any denial. Tell him he shall not speak with me. He has been told so, and he says he'll stand at your door like a sheriff's post and be the supporter to a bench, but he'll speak with you. What kind of man is he? Why, of mankind. What manner of man? Of very ill manner. He'll speak with you, <laughs> will you or no? Of what personage in years is he? Not yet old enough for a man, nor young enough for a boy. As a squash is before tis a peas cod, or a cooling when tis almost an apple, tis with him. In standing water between boy and man, he is very well-favoured, and he speaks very shrewishly. One would think his mother's milk were scarce out of him. Let him approach. Call in my gentlewoman. Gentlewoman! My lady calls. Give me my veil. Come, throw it o'er my face. We'll once more hear Orsino's embassy. The honorable lady of the house, which is she? Speak to me. I shall answer for her. Your will? Most radiant, exquisite, and unmatchable beauty, I pray you, tell me if this be the lady of the house, for I never saw her. I would be loath to cast away my speech, for besides that it is excellently well penned, I have taken great pains to con it. Good beauties, let me sustain no scorn. I am very comfortable, even to the least sinister usage. Whence came you, sir? I can say little more than I have studied, and that question's out of my part. Good gentle one, give me modest assurance if you be the lady of the house, that I may proceed in my speech. Are you a comedian? No, my profound heart. And yet, by the very fangs of malice, I swear, I am not that I play. Are you the lady of the house? If I do not usurp myself, I am. Most certain. If you are she, you do usurp yourself, for what is yours to bestow is not yours to reserve. But this is from my commission. I will on with my speech in your praise, and then show you the heart of my message. Come to what is important in it. I forgive you the praise. Alas, I took great pains to study it, and tis poetical. It is the more like to be feigned. I pray you, keep it in. I heard you were saucy at my gates, and allowed your approach rather to wonder at you than to hear you. If you be not mad, be gone. If you have reason, be brief. Tis not that time of moon with me to make one in so skipping a dialogue. Will you hoist your sail, sir? Here lies your way. No, good swabber. I am to hull here a little longer. Some mollification for your giant sweet lady. Tell me your mind. I am a messenger. Sure, you have some hideous matter to deliver when the courtesy of it is so fearful. Speak your office. It alone concerns your ear. I bring no overture of 
war, no taxation of homage. I hold the olive in my hand. My words are as fun of peace as matter. Yet you began rudely. What are you? What would you? The rudeness that hath appeared in me have I learned from my entertainment. What I am and what I would are as secret as maidenhead. To your ears, divinity. To any others, profanation. Give us the place alone. We will hear this divinity. Now, sir, what is your text? Most sweet lady. A comfortable doctrine, and much may be said of it. Where lies your text? In Orsino's bosom. In his bosom? In what chapter of his bosom? To answer by the method in the first of his heart. Oh, I have read it. It is heresy. Have you no more to say? Good madam, let me see your face. Have you any commission from your lord to negotiate with my face? You are now out of your text, but we will draw the curtain and show you the picture. Look you, sir. Such a one I was this present. Is not well done? Excellently done, if God did all. Tis ingrained, sir. Twill endure wind and weather. Tis beauty truly blent, whose red and white nature's own sweet cunning hand laid on. Lady, you are the cruelest she alive, if you will lead these graces to the grave, and leave the world no copy. Oh, sir, I will not be so hard-hearted. I will give out divers schedules of my beauty. It shall be inventoried, and every particle and utensil labelled to my will, as item, two lips, in different red, item, two grey eyes, with lids to them, item, one neck, one chin, and so forth. Were you sent hither to praise me? I see what you are. You are too proud. But if you were the devil, you are fair. My lord and master loves you. Oh, such love could be but recompensed. Though you were crowned the non-parala beauty. How does he love me? With adorations, fertile tears, with groans that thunder love, with sighs of fire. Your lord does know my mind. I cannot love him. Yet I suppose him virtuous, know him noble, of great estate, of fresh and stainless youth, in voices well divulged, free, learned, and valiant, and in dimension and the shape of nature, a gracious person. But yet I cannot love him. He might have took this answer long ago. If I did love you in my master's flame, with such a suffering, such a deadly life, in your denial I would find no sense. I would not understand it. Why, what would you? Make me a willow cabin at your gate And call upon my soul within the house Write loyal cantons of contemned love And sing them loud even in the dead of night Hallow your name to the reverberate hills And make the babbling gossip of the air Cry out, Olivia Oh, you should not rest Between the elements of air and earth But you should pity me who might do much? <clears throat> uh, what is your parentage? Above my fortunes, yet my state is well. 
I am a gentleman. Get you to your lord. I cannot love him. Let him send no more. Unless, perchance, you come to me again to tell me how he takes it. Fare you well. I thank you for your pains. Spend this for me. I am no feed post, lady. Keep your purse. My master, not myself, lacks recompense. Love, make his heart a flint that you shall love. And let your fervor, like my master's, be placed in contempt. Farewell, fair cruelty. Ugh, what is your parentage? <sighs> Above my fortunes, yet my state is well. I am a gentleman. <sighs> I'll be sworn thou art. Thy tongue, thy face, thy limbs, actions, and spirit do give thee fivefold blazon. Not too fast. Soft, soft, unless the master were the man. How now? Even so quickly may one catch the plague? Methinks I feel this youth's perfections with an invisible and subtle stealth to creep in at mine eyes. Well, let it be. What ho, Malvolio? Here, madam, at your service. Run after that same peevish messenger, the county's man. He left this ring behind him. Would I or not, tell him I'll none of it. Desire him not to flatter with his lord, nor hold him up with hopes. I am not for him. If that the youth will come this way tomorrow, I'll give him reasons for it. Hi thee, Malvolio. Madam, I will. I do I know not what... And fear to find mine eye too great a flatterer for my mind. Fate, show thy force. Ourselves we do not owe. What is decreed must be, and be this so. Two more characters. We get to meet Festi, and we get to meet Malvolio. And we get to meet Olivia, right? This is Olivia's first scene yep and in some ways cesario i mean we kind of have had a glimpse but we really get cesario proper we really do we see cesario mm -hmm. in their true aspect of presenting themselves as a eunuch and as male at birth as uh, they are trying to woo olivia for the desperate arsino so the scene starts out Mariah, Maria, Mary, and Festy have a little discussion where she chastises him for being missing. Where the heck were you? And they talk about that. And then, uh, and we'll get into all of this in more depth. And then, you know, he convinces her that he'll be able to sweet talk Olivia into forgiving him which he does and also has a little interaction with malvolio who is olivia's steward and malvolio and festi clearly are not friends and then olivia actually kind of sticks up for malvolio and then uh, sir toby wanders in drunk surprising nobody because Viola Cesario is there to try to woo Olivia for Orsino. And then what follows after that is 
Cesario coming in, talking to Olivia, trying to figure out who Olivia is. So at the very top of the scene. Nay, either tell me where thou hast been, or I will not open my lips so wide as a bristle may enter in way of thy excuse. My lady will hang thee for thy absence. Let her hang me. He that is well hanged in this world needs to fear no colors. Make that good. He shall see none to fear. A good Lenten answer. I can tell thee where that saying was born of, I fear no colors. Where, good Mistress Mary? In the wars. And that may you be bold to say in your foolery. Okay, let's stop there. Let's stop there. There's so much there. <laughs> I love this imagery that none but a bristle may enter hmm. by way of excuse. I mean, is she talking about brushing her teeth there? We know that they brushed their teeth with bristles. So I'm, I'm guessing, you know, they made like boar bristle kind of brushes for, for teeth and gums. So I'm guessing that's what they're talking about. My lady will hang thee for thy absence. Well, there she's just being a straight woman for him. You know, he's got to say something about that. He's saying, well, he that is well hanged in this world need to fear no colors. So dick joke. <laughs> two two right sentences up. in. Her, she's she's on quota. <laughs> Make that good, she says. Now, you know, is she flirting here? Is she saying, uh, you know, picks her? It didn't happen. What's right. uh, <laughs> you know? It's really interesting here. All this this beginning stuff, if I may, that the. the uh, it, the clown is always such a rough moment for me and my interaction in the show. Um, and it, because it's such an important and integral element of, of that inner thread to the show, you know, that the, the clown and, and, and this energy that, you know, once, once Festy's in the sun begins to rise on this thing. We first see Olivia and later on the scene have some really important realizations and that casting of the clown and the attack on the clown in this show is, is just always one of the great puzzles to start to unravel you know when when you're getting into this thing because you get a lot of jester sticking a foot out bah, 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 on every line you know this kind of thing and then you can take that all the way to your ben kingsley that just very straightforward, mm -hmm. very realistic, very earthy, very real connection, especially with Olivia a little later, where we just, we feel their interaction and all that. But there's something X factor about the clown. Like, what is the X factor about Festy? And that's always one of the big things to discover here, because he's got a lot of, of work to do, as we'll see here. You know, he's yes. got to get a lot of... Got a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, heavy lifting with all the characters. And also is celebrated by all the characters as this wondrous force and this amazing creature for the most part. I mean, he's, he's really uh, uh, memorable to them, something that, you know, they notice his absence and et cetera, you know? Um, so yeah, th just to say that that is always uh, a, ch a challenging moment here as we start to get into this scene is what's our mm -hmm. on the clown. And I, I've always, the successful times I've been involved with in it have, I think pulled more from that that heart, sort of the Ben Kingsley end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And although I will say, uh, for me personally, that performance in particular, Kingsley, was brilliant, wonderful, and I felt it. But I did not feel I was watching a clown that whole time. Mm -hmm. So that's the trouble that I, I get into here is is 
can he do lifting? Can we get all the stuff that needs to happen? Can he be the central thematic element of the play? Can they have that magic about them? The X factor. What is the thing that makes them the clown? Is it just understanding other people? Is it just being an ear? Is it being so witty that they're of value or, you know, yeah. So all of that. Yeah. And I, I think that's so true because I've seen a few Twelfth Nights where Festy felt like kind of the weak link where I felt like the directors just did not get that character at all. And again, no slam against Ben Kingsley. If I only had as much talent as he has in his little pinky, but I didn't get Festy from that performance either. That didn't feel to me like a Festy. And I see sometimes Festy portrayed by people who don't have enough magnetism, who don't have enough charisma. Like the clown has to be somebody that everybody wants to look at. If, if he can't pull attention away from everybody in the court, then he or she can't do their job. And I'm fascinated with clowns. I'm fascinated with fools. Men and women both held that role. You can see a picture of a female fool. There's a very famous painting of Henry VIII with his daughters and his son and his current wife, whichever one that was. And there's a, a male fool on one side and a female fool on the other. And when I get the website up, I'll, I'll post this picture up there. But her name was Jane Fool, and they were everywhere. In this particular time in Shakespeare's career, he had a new clown. And that clown was Robert Armin. The one before that had been Will Kemp. Yeah. yeah. And Will Kemp was, you know, Falstaff, bottom, very physical. Prank falls. He was a famous dancer. He danced all the way from one part of the country to the other after he got fired by uh, or left or who knows what happened. Artistic differences, right? So. Anyway, after he left Shakespeare's troupe, and then they got Robert Armin in, and Robert Armin was very well educated. He had been apprenticed as a goldsmith, and goldsmiths were a very high-ranking guild. And back in the day, guilds had, in addition to their practical aspect in terms of organizing labor and setting up fair conditions for apprentices and making sure that everybody had the materials that they need and mitigating disputes and things like that. But they also had a very esoteric function and they would have much like the Freemasons who were originally a guild, they had ceremonies and rituals and esoteric things that they pursued in a spiritual way. And the goldsmiths were sort of the high priest of many of those societies. They were kind of considered the most learned of those different guilds. And the fact that Robert Armin had been an apprentice with the goldsmiths meant that he would have had access to a lot of literature and esoteric stuff and could well have certainly would have known Latin, very likely Greek. Many of the things that Festi refers to 
draws on that knowledge of Pythagoras and everything else. And so I get super excited whenever I see Festi say something that makes no sense. Because then I know there's something really cool behind it. And unfortunately, when you read an analysis about Twelfth Night, so often scholars will come to Festi and just throw up their hands and say, oh, he's just talking nonsense. It doesn't really mean anything. It always means something. Festi never says nonsense. And we'll get into one of those kind of points of scholarship contention in a little bit about one of these words that he says. Festi throughout the play, he is such an important thread. And I think this is definitely one of the characters that can be played male or female or non-binary. Women can make dick jokes too. But I feel like when casting Festi, he's a linchpin. It's really difficult. And you need someone who can sing. Yeah. If they can play an instrument, that's even better. I've been really fortunate with both my Festis and the one that's on this recording. He's a classical guitarist and has a beautiful voice and just added so much to the production by being so generous with his talent and letting me record all this classical music that he knew. I, I was able to find him some traditional tunes that he learned for me. And so all of that music, including songs that Viola and Malvolio sing, they're all on one specific episode of the podcast. And you can find that if you, if you want to. It is it is important that, that that music here, you know, we don't get as as much into it in this scene yet, but it is mm-hmm. we do Festi is the entryway into that aspect of Illyria and the, the play as a whole. And it is one of the major, major themes and his use of it in a lot of ways dictates the kind of his or her use of it dictates the kind of show and the kind of feeling that we're going to have about Illyria and Twelfth Night as a whole, once we're done, you know, that attack on the music, e- equally important to costume uh, design, all, every aspect of the mm-hmm. show. For my purposes, Festi, I'm always trying to break that sort of reticent, wise-ass, like, kind of sweet, you know, thing and get it active and get it forward without becoming cartoonish, too, too ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but yes. the, um, and so for my taste, the music, you know, a lot of those songs have actual history. They're real songs. Um, mm-hmm. And we got at least parts of them. So I've gone operatic each time. And I, I, I had the great pleasure now to, to direct this a few times. And, and we've developed fully operatic sort of bravura, you know, pa-pa-pa, jumping on the top of a precipice overlooking, you know, the back of the stage or something. And then, you know, out to the audience so that we're, we're really using those moments to build a momentum, drive it forward. And, and that we see, you know, especially later when we get into the confrontation between uh, Festi and Malvolio's demise, you know, that moment in particular musically. And, but they can be used as these big forward these kinds of special effects as a representation of part of the magic of this whole thing so i totally agree and we went very traditional on this one 
but I really kind of want to do a rock and roll 12th night and have Festy have like an electric guitar. Like, wouldn't that be fun to show like Festy is like that. the rock star? I'm sure it's been done. You know, Our right? Festy was a troubadour, which I thought was kind of oh, cool. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he would have been, I mean, that's an accurate, that's an accurate representation. He was definitely a troubadour. What about you, Bridget? What do you find when you are looking for a festi for your productions? Are you looking for somebody who's particularly good at improv or quick on their feet? What are you looking for? Uh, our festi was a young woman who is one of our great comic geniuses for our troupe and she just has such a lovely sense of the absurd and such a great stage presence she's she's a dynamo and she holds your attention without having to be outlandish and she also happens to have an absolutely beautiful singing voice so it was very fun and she's physically she's small so it's fun to watch her go up in our Malvolio was very tall and very slim and so it was sort of fun the visual of the two of them going up against each other was a lot of fun and she just has this very wry and very knowing persona so her festi was not well she was a fool but she broached no fools better a witty fool than a foolish wit yes how mm -hmm. about you Katarina if you were helping a festi with movement and choreography what would you be looking for what kind of skills in your ideal festi hmm I think I mean like the festi in my college in my university's production was really attractive and I thought that was interesting um, but for this particular festi it does work and after I didn't know the history actually of the guy who uh, the part was written for. So that makes a whole lot of sense why, because this is a very different fool than we see in a lot of other productions. Like you said, like with the physical comedy, it's just, um, I guess you'd want more of a dancer type person. Like I do, he seems a little more classy, but maybe that's just my like, I think you're absolutely right. Self talking. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. He's in a different class than the Will Kemp type of clown. And he definitely keeps up with Olivia, which I think is like the fool always has something wise to say, but like just feel like he's looked to as more of a wise person in this show than say some of the other fools are. Mm hmm. So I'm not sure. I, I would think it would really depend on the the director's artistic statement before the show, for sure, and, and what kind of movement you'd want. But it'd be interesting to add some dance in there and some mime, give it a little more class to the clown. <laughs> <laughs> and if music be the fruit of love, play on. <laughs> going back to... Going back to Orsino. Music. Yeah, going back to Orsino, for sure. I mean, it's one of the really famous quotes and. When I first came across, I was like, this is where this quote is from, mind blown. I wasn't expecting it to be in a comedy. <laughs> Though, I mean, I should have been because all comedies end in marriage. <laughs> well, we're certainly seeing at the time a shift in people's tastes from this kind of slapstick, very physical clown to a more cerebral kind of verbal type of humor. And it seems to have been really inspiring to Shakespeare because 
also, you know, he wrote King Lear during this period mm -hmm. and a few other plays where you can see the influence of Robert Armin. And we have every reason to believe that Armin could have contributed in the script. If you've ever done any playwriting, you know that the first people who work through your script with you, who do readings with you, who workshop it with you, they contribute to the play. They contribute to the script. If you're a good playwright, <laughs> right? You well, know, yeah, yeah. If you're a bad playwright and go, I don't care what any of you think, then that doesn't happen so much. But well, and you have to have the good ear to be able to pick out the lines that are like, aha, aha. Sure. Yes. Aha. Uh, you know, the playwright is the playwright and can recognize hopefully a good line when they see one. And I suspect that uh, Shakespeare and Robert Armin, they certainly had an excellent collaborative relationship because this is probably their first play together. And it's different than all the previous plays in terms of mm -hmm. its verbal complexity, its layers. As a comedy, it it's really on a whole different level than the comedies that have come before. And Olivia's just so self-possessed. Like I think of all the main women characters he has and there's a lot of she's really claimed her I think in claiming her ability to not get married she's given herself more power okay so we're talking about whole... Olivia so oh, so we're gonna wait we're, sorry. that's okay that's okay I got, I, no, I, no 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 it's, like it's a relationship with Festy. it's just so it's almost like a friendship which I think is okay well we'll get to that in just a sec okay oh my okay okay yeah don't worry don't worry <laughs> I do want to say that circling back to that idea of the collaboration between author, uh, actor and author, mm -hmm. it's so much easier to write when you can hear their voices in your head. And mm -hmm. so I know I have a, I, there's, we have an ongoing radio series that I write. And the first one I wrote cold. Um, and then as we've done each episode, I have the same actors doing each episode. And so more and more they're the, the personalities they've created for the characters influence and inform the decisions I'm making for what happens to those characters in the next episode. So yeah, you can definitely, this is clearly a, a group of his actors who were particularly gifted at the verbal comedy and Absolutely. able to keep up with that. It'd be really interesting to see a modernized like movie where they're like, let's watch them make Twelfth night, and then we see like the relationship build out. They like feed off each other. It's <laughs> like ah. Oh. Okay, so uh, I, I have so much more that I'd love to talk about Festy, and and I know that all of you have lots of other ideas about Festies and clowns and everything, and and that's going to be a whole other episode at some point. It might be like ten hours long. I have so much to talk about. <laughs> Can I add one more point? Like, I feel like Festy, especially in this one, like, he's a real truth teller as opposed to like, I mean, the, the clown is always kind of a truth teller, but like very, very much so. He's, he's a, he's at John Stewart level. Yes. Or yes. Colbert level doing mm -hmm. the, the press corps dinner in front of Bush level of speaking truth. Or... What's that one woman? She's got the red hair, shorter. So she got, she did the, ah, well, never. <laughs> yes. 
Thank you. I'm so glad you could figure that out. <sighs> she is. Okay. Like, yeah. Okay. So, um, so we've already found our first dick joke in the second line, really in the first line, because she sets them up for it. She knows. Make that good. And <laughs> dick jokes <laughs> are us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wait till we do Romeo and Juliet if we ever do Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, he shall see none to fear. A good Lenten answer. So what does she mean by that, Bridget, as our resident person who was raised Catholic? What does she mean by a good Lenten answer? <laughs> Well, don't take me as any sort of authority on Catholicism. <laughs> it's been a long time since I <laughs> went to church. Well, I can um, I can delete that if you want me to. <laughs> oh no, it doesn't all bother right. me at all. Um, you know, uh, you know, Lent is a time of sacrifice and reflection and um, poverty, really, of giving mm. things up. So, you know, after all of the you know elaborate wordplay of the first first few lines. Um, you know, the fact that that answer is so short that, that, oh. that Festy gives him is, you know, is that that's, you know, well, that's not interesting. That's not, you know, that's not any, that doesn't have any substance to keep this conversation going. Well, I wonder, you know, back to the dick jokes. So, you know, she says, make that good. And he demurs. He says, he shall see none to fear. Mm -hmm. And she says, a good Lenten answer. So does that mean that, you know, he's abstaining from perhaps more hedonistic response? Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about that. And, and dear listeners, I, I don't have the answers on this. I'm hoping that one mm. of you will decide to write your thesis on that one line and enlighten me. But I, I have a lot of questions about that response that she has. And it, Perhaps somebody has already written one and can kindly send it to me. And then she says, I can tell thee where that saying was born. I fear no colors. And he politely asks her in the wars and that you may be bold to say in your foolery. So she's given him a little shit about not being a soldier here, right? She's kind of saying, you know, it's all well and good for you to take risks you're not on the front lines here and then Festy says well god give them wisdom that have it and those that are fools let them use their talents he brings it back to him mm -hmm. and uh talents again uh, i'll let you guess what a talent can be i don't think it's gender specific but if it's if i'm wrong i'm sure somebody can tell me <laughs> And then, yet you will be hanged for being so long absent or to be turned away. Is not that as good as a hanging to you? And here she makes an important point. She's not joking here. She's saying, why do you risk your life like this? You know, you, you need to take this threat seriously. You have enemies here. People aren't going to necessarily want to put up with your bullshit forever. 
you need to take care of yourself, Festy. And you can see that she has a real affection for him. If she didn't care what happened to Festy, she would not worry about him getting turned out in the cold. But, uh, you know, Festy, Festy can't again resist a dick joke and says, uh, oh, did we? No, I'm all right. There's just so many lines here. And says, many a good hanging prevents a bad marriage. Well, <laughs> we've got two words, you know, two meanings here. One is that if, if someone is, is hung from a scaffold, that might prevent a bad marriage between the person who was hung and somebody else. And it's saying that if somebody was well hung, if, if a man was well endowed, had a large penis, that they were likely to marry better somebody that they wanted or they could please their wife better. And pleasing your wife sexually was a big deal in Elizabethan England. It was one of the few reasons that you could divorce your husband if he was not giving you enough sex. So, <laughs> so that it was key to a good marriage for a man to be able to please and satisfy his wife. And then she says, you are resolute then. Another dick joke. You are resolute. You are proud. You are standing tall. Even through all of this, you have the vitality, the sexual vitality that you feel confident going in to talk to this woman who's in mourning that, that you just disappeared when she needed you most. And then he says, not so neither, but I am resolved on two points. Now, points are a kind of a pinchy kind of a clamp that people use to hold their stockings up. And it's kind of part of a garter. And so then she says, ah, that if one break, the other will hold. Or if both break, your gaskins will fall. You will lose your pants. <laughs> you will, mm -hmm. you know, your, your butt will be hanging out if those points break. Again, she's taken this phrase that he thought was so clever and twisted it around and proved that she's at least as smart as he is, if not more. And then he possibly stung a little bit and says, apt in good faith, very apt. That's like, he's saying, surrender. I surrender. I give. You win this round. You are cleverer than me. Well, go thy way. <laughs> Sour grapes. And then he gets a little dig in. If Sir Toby would leave drinking, thou wert as witty a piece of Eve's flesh as any in Illyria. And so he's saying, okay, you think you're so smart. Why are you chasing after this drunkard? <laughs> and then she says, peace, you rogue. He's gone a little too far, but that's his job. No more of that. Here comes my lady. Make your excuse wisely. You were best. Meaning you were best advised to follow my advice. No matter how clever you think you are, you better come up with something because she's really upset. Okay. Awesome. Could it also be interpreted as you were bested? Like, ha, ah, you were bested. Oh, good cool. point. Could be. 
could be. There's certainly no reason why it can't be both. Mm. When in doubt, it's it's both. Yes, John. <laughs> well, and just sort of dramatically overarching in, in this thing, the affection being established, you know, with the, the household with between these two, there's always that kind of undercurrent. As far as the dick jokes, and I mean, there's an argument to be made line to line pretty much, but the the playing the action of the scene, I think there is that threat that you're talking about. And then also the there's that threat of genuine concern that he's been gone and come back. There's a seasonal quality to Festing. He's, he almost alludes to the fact that he might be gone again or that this that it's with the summer let summer play it out and but there's a non-commitment there and when, when uh he's talking uh, with her about if you were witty as a uh, piece of eve's flesh and and that her response with the piece she wrote the under the underscore there is a, as a concern and a reassurance between them as they're going into the big room or you know what i mean as they're preparing for milady to to enter like a brother and sister that i have to go talk to mom and dad almost or it, it's got that anticipation to it too okay here we go you know i think that's that's very perceptive and the fact that they are teasing each other but it's clearly an affectionate teasing She's genuinely concerned that he will get turned out. And he's genuinely concerned that she has this affection for Toby that may be ill-advised. Well, he's saying that you're worth more than like every other woman here. And you're going with the city a drunkard? Like, <laughs> come on. Yeah, I thought you were smart. You're you're smarter than everybody else in Illyria. Like, come on, lady. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And who among us has not said that to a friend at some point? Like, what are you doing? Well, and it could also be, are you guys ever going to get married? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there is the familiarity, like, definitely. And there is a little bit of the chastising, definitely, on Sir Toby. But it's, regardless for me, it does smack of concern. And Festy does this a lot when he's encountering any of the characters especially but also when they turn to him and want to talk about him he flips it to mm. them it's never about him right he always he's always holding up a mirror and dealing with and they're fine to eventually get into themselves and their own woes and as we'll see you know in the remainder of the scene but he's constantly the mirror and he's this cipher he's this thing that that blows in and out kind of almost like peter sellers just fell into different characters but could never answer questions about his personal self like he's like don't ask questions about who i am and like when it's on the muppet show and then like so that's really, <laughs> he kept flipping it on them that's really interesting that clowns often need to do that because you have to have a certain facade to be the clown right you Mm -hmm. You're constantly trying to focus that outward so that people aren't attacking you. Well, in Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's clowns tend to be in service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They tend to be all, and usually in service to a very major character, you know, a dying king or a madman or a woman in mourning or uh, mm -hmm. whatever the stakes may be. We're going into the woods and they're going to kill us if they catch us. So th I think there's a function there of almost being the avatar for the audience there in that the, the personal history of that character is less important than us having that vehicle to interact anew with all of these characters up here and to provoke them into responding in ways that, because if we don't have a new character, obviously in the scene that's provocative and interesting, we're just going to be watching them have tea. And yes, they may be in mourning and they may have great stakes going on and never have a 
romantic relationship again, but we won't know that unless one of these guys comes in and is really incredibly interested in what's going on with their lives. All that to say, the lack of personal stakes, personal history in terms of the biography of the fools themselves in Shakespeare's plays, I think contributes to some of the greatest performances that I've seen because it allows truly great actors to fill in mm -hmm. the gaps. There's, I think, one of probably the best I've ever seen done in any Shakespearean production was A Fool of Lear's. And it was, I don't know the, the man, mm -hmm. and it was a kid at the time. He was probably college age at the time. But he loved the way he loved mm -hmm. Lear, the way that affection that he had for I to this, I mean, I've played Hamlet. I've seen great Hamlets, but that loved that he had there it just met so and that, those are that's the kind of skill that's that x factor mm. you know for a fool well and going back to like how you know kings would use fools to kind of get the truth out of them and if okay then festy uh kind of talking to himself here says wit and be thy will put me into good fooling those wits that think they have thee do very oft prove fools and so he's saying people who think they're smart often come across as foolish and I that am sure I lack thee may pass for a wise man. For what says Quinopolis, better a witty fool than a foolish wit. And then he then enters Olivia with Malvolio and he says, God bless thee, lady. But I want to get into Quinopolis because that's one of those words that uh, people don't know what it means. And uh, for years now, people have assumed that Quinopolis was like a made-up philosopher, just kind of a silly word that Festi made up as an appeal to authority, as a way of saying, well, this important person said it, and, you know, ergo, it must be true. And it's even come down through the years now as when somebody says, oh, Quinopolis said that, then the audience in some circles would understand that to mean that I made it up. Hmm. However, on uh, wikivisually.com, I found a more, much more interesting answer. If you look up Quinopolis on the wikivisually. I swear to God, if you say it's a big joke. <laughs> Start swearing, honey. <laughs> really? I was kidding. Oh my gosh. Hit me. All right, do it to me. Here we go. You know, Festi's, Festi's fools, they had something called a bauble, which had a, a little uh, carving at the tip of that was meant to represent the. Are you serious? Is this really a dick joke? That... <laughs> oh my God. This is a comedy. There's lots of dick jokes. Oh Tragedies of dick jokes, too. Wonderful. Just, that's, that's true. Wonderful. We need comic relief everywhere. Hey, you got it. To be or not to be, to be. <laughs> well, that is the question. To fuck or not to fuck? <laughs> two balls or not two balls, huh? Um. <sighs> <laughs> anyway. nice. Better one in the hand. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so those are called a bauble. And at one end was the fool's head. And at the other end were bull testicles emptied out and filled with sand that swung back and forth. And so a bauble was a phallic 
substitute better than the fool whipping out their own genitals, which probably happened on occasion. If it makes people laugh, they certainly were famous for dropping their trousers. Farting was a huge skill. It was so highly esteemed that people who could fart on command sometimes trained themselves to put a trumpet on their backside, play assorted tunes, and they could make a lot of money, get awarded huge tracts of land, I, all kinds of things. Farting was a, a tracts of land, huge tracts of land. I, if you've seen Blazing Saddles, you know that's a joke. Okay, so a lot of times he would talk to his bauble. There's a few ways to interpret Quinapolis in French, and I know I'm butchering this. I apologize. Qui n'a pas lu translates to he who hasn't read. And so, kinapula, kinapalus is a loose play on kinapaslu. And kinapalu. Thank you, darling. <laughs> kinapalu. And who knows how he pronounced it? He could have pronounced it kinapalus, which would be, you know, you're adding loose onto the end of things, or in a kind of mock Italian for kinapalo, which meant there on the stick which hmm. there's your dick joke and could imply that the clown is pretending to talk to the carved head on his bobble. And then if you look at it as an anagram, which Shakespeare used all the time, and that's a whole other subject, and it's incredibly fascinating that deserves its own podcast, which I'm not going to make. Somebody hmm. out there should make it, please. Anagram, you can turn it around to Akina and Paul, and will create Akinopolis. So Paul was certainly revered as a wise figure. And so there we have three different layers of possible meaning to Kinopolis. So yes, it is a dick joke. So then we get to meet Olivia and Malvolio. And he says wisely, God bless thee, lady. Like, Nothing was wrong. He doesn't come in going, I'm, I'm so sorry I had to go. My aunt was sick, blah, 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 blah. None of that. None of that. He just says, hey, long time no see. And she says, take the fool away. Great mm -hmm. open flag. <laughs> and okay. how profound for Olivia. Isn't that what she's saying the whole dang play? Get rid of that fool. Get rid of that fool. You're all fools. Take them all away. I'm tired of you all. And then Festy turns it around on her, right? Do you not hear fellows take away the lady? The nerve. <laughs> <laughs> the nerve. Go to your a dry fool. Oof. What do you want to guess? This is John. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the well has been tapped. It's a boob joke. It's a boob joke. No, uh, this is another dick joke because <laughs> yeah, because a penis is a fool, right? I mean, we we still even mm -hmm. to this day we agree that uh, that penises are not are not smart and make they only have enough blood to run one head. Exactly, they make <laughs> bad choices. 
Well, and dry, you know, you get like three or four, mm. you know, the dry jest, the buttery uh, bar. Mm-hmm. A harken back yeah. to the previous yep. scene. And she's basically saying, you're limp here. You are not pleasing me, fool. I'll know more of you besides you grow dishonest. And dishonest isn't just a matter of being somebody who lies here. Dishonest is... Non-virtuous. Yes. Yes, exactly. Somebody not to be trusted at a, at a spiritual level. And then he does a little masterpiece of a monologue. Let's see. And John, would you read that wonderful little monologue there? Two faults, Madonna. The drink and good counsel will amend. Forgive the dry fool drink, then is the fool not dry. Bid the dishonest man mend himself. If he mend, he is no longer dishonest. If he cannot, let the botcher mend him. Anything that's mended is but patched. Virtue that transgresses is but patched with sin, and sin that amends is but patched with virtue. If that this simple syllogism will serve, so. If it will not, what remedy? As there is no true cuckold but calamity, so beauty is a flower. The lady bade, take away the fool. Therefore, I say again, take her away. <laughs> He's just shown off. <laughs> I just love him so much. So he's talking about patched. And patched was a type of clothing. And it was the type of clothing that the fool would wear. And so it, it reminds me of that old joke where somebody says to somebody else, you're ugly or you're stupid or whatever and the other person says well you're drunk and then that person retorts yeah but i'll be sober in the morning so what festi is saying here is that okay you got me i'm fine i'm a dry fool give me something to drink I can fix all these things that you're mad about you can't fix what's wrong with you the nerve, mm-hmm. the nerve of this guy. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, this is who I am. I'm doing my job. I for sure can get better at it. But what you're doing, lady, is not okay. You're not okay. And this harkens back to everything that she's doing. She's closed herself off for seven years. She's refusing to even consider marriage. To the point where by the time that she would come out of her seclusion, it might be difficult for her to get married, or it might be difficult for her to have children, and that all of this is very foolish of her. And there's, oh my gosh, so much more in there. But, you know, if we did a line by line close reading of all of Festi's lines, that would be its own podcast. So, indeed. And then, she says, Sir, I bade them take away you. Oof. She's still not impressed. <laughs> and then John? Miss Prision in the highest degree. Lady, cuclus non facet monacum. That's as much to say, I went out motley in my brain. Good Madonna, give me leave to prove okay. you a fool. So he's going back to, look, I'm the fool. 
I'm wearing patches. I'm wearing motley. I am not your steward. I am not your gentlewoman. I come and go. I'm the fool. It's my job to be subversive. It's not my job to conform to other people's expectations. But I am not a fool in my head. I can see that there is something very wrong. And I can prove it to you that you are laboring under a foolish misconception or set of beliefs or something like that. And here he is really earning his keep. In a sense, this is the moment where we see that he's worth all the trouble that he causes. And she says, well, can you do it? And he says, dexterously, good Madonna. Dexterously. It's, it's, it, that's always been one, one of those things like, why, what the hell? Why did he add that? De, you know, dexterously. Uh, he, dexterously. Dexterously. And yeah. it's a way of, so dexterity. Right. Yeah. yeah your, your nimbleness. Your nimbleness yeah. But it also means right-handed. And so it means I can do it the right way. I can do it correctly in such a way. Like 100% in, like with yes. panache, handily. Yes. I can do it handily. But uh, in, in the, the, the old versions here, it's got that dexterous really? mm -hmm. oh, spelled oh. that way. Dexterous. Okay. Yeah, which is always, I, it's always just like, is he playing around oh, yeah. there, that kind of thing? <laughs> I'll bet it's a dick joke if we look yeah. into it. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> What's interesting here too with this this whole area, because you know, like you were talking about how you know he comes in and you would think it should be an apology for the stuff that he uh, mm -hmm. for not being around. You know that we know that she wanted him around, and he's this a fencing match going on here. He's not letting himself get caught up in the early quick apology without depth, and he's setting himself up here for something of true meaning to her. He's going to gonna he's batting aside these gnats of initial pretense of rage and you know knowing that they're in full view of the rest of the court not diving into the depths there to allow the banter to establish to grow root and then it's it's a thrust right to the heart absolutely and then olivia says make your proof proof has a specific meaning have have either of you looked into this well i, I think so I, you know there's the mathematical proof and that's yeah. very close to it because and this gets into the whole use of rhetoric in shakespeare's time and that rhetoric is a specific science it's a specific kind of a art form that was taught really up until very recently you know maybe in the last hundred years or so or less has it it died out in kind of a more classical education but we're used to thinking of rhetoric as well you can have a rhetorical question where somebody is posing a question that they're not really expecting an answer to but rhetoric has a much more comprehensive meaning where it's talking about different kinds of arguments and in Shakespeare's day when kids went to school they were taught how to use these different kinds of rhetoric or what we would consider these different forms of argumentation. So now we can talk about an appeal to authority would have been a particular kind of rhetoric. But there were other kinds of rhetoric. There was the rhetoric of 
listing everything that was good about something and then the other rhetoric about listing everything that was bad about something and how you could twist those around. You could have a rhetorical presentation where you're listing all the things that are good about something and then you get to the end of that list and realize that actually those are liabilities and vice versa. So there are please forgive me scholars, but there are 12 or 16 or 18 different kinds of rhetorical arguments. And kids in that time period would need to be able to present a topic with all those different rhetorical arguments. And they would do these in a dramatic way. And so this is where a lot of actors in that time period got their training was in performing these sort of improv plays of rhetorical arguments where two characters would argue with each other, much like debate teams do now. They don't necessarily agree with what, you know, the position that they're putting forward. They're more being looked at for how effective that that argument is. So when you understood that, and um, anyway, there's a specific book and <laughs> I will bring it up later in a, in a later podcast, uh, but there's a wonderful nun who goes through and looks at Shakespeare and his use of this rhetorical framework. And you can see actually how at the beginning of his playwriting career, he relies on the rhetorical framework and these traditional plots and basically puts them together and adds a lot of puns and dick jokes and layers of meaning. And voila, he has a play. As he progresses, as he matures as a playwright, he, he tweaks those rhetorical forms more and more and more. And that's where a lot of his contemporary audiences at the time would have recognized him as a genius in that sense, because he could use that form to get across anything. He, he was just a genius with it. And so a lot of the times when we see Shakespeare making lists or, or doing other kinds of funny things with characters or wondering, well, why does this character talk this way and this one talks that way? It's because they're embodying a specific type of rhetorical argument. And again, I'm sure there are many scholars out there who understand this better than I do. And I would love, seriously love to hear from you and would be happy to interview you on the podcast if you would be so bold. Hmm. So that's a long way of saying that uh, proof was a successful rhetorical argument. Fantastic. And then he says, I must catechize you for it, Madonna. Good my mouse of virtue, answer me. I love that mouse of virtue. Yeah. <laughs> well, sir, for want of other idleness, I'll bide your proof. Good Madonna, why mournst thou? Good fool for my brother's death. I think his soul is in hell, Madonna. I know his soul is in heaven, fool. The more fool, Madonna, to mourn for your brother's soul being in heaven. Take away the fool, gentlemen. So catechize is, uh, how would you interpret that, Bridget? Catechism is a series of questions and answers that Catholics are required to familiarize themselves with and memorize some of them in order to be confirmed, which is the last step in being um, accepted as a full member of the Catholic faith. You need to be baptized, you need to um, receive communion, and you need to be confirmed in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure what my mouse of virtue means, but I... It's surprisingly affectionate and implying a 
a lack at the same time, you know, like uh, that she's lo- mm-hmm. perhaps lacking in mightiness in that quality. Or, but there's a, it's a wonderful, uh, it's coaxed down this path. And for me, this moment, the heaven and hell and the brother, it's so effective, not just as a grab or a gotcha for that he plucks that string and, you know, and mm-hmm. he can elicit that emotional response to the point where she, you know, next says, well, what do we think of this? And and is off of her tirade, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It works. He gives her that catharsis that she so desperately needs. And he's doing a few things here. Not only is he making an appeal to the idea of, well, if you had any faith, you'd know that your your brother's in a in a good place. And to be clear, listeners, I am not condoning or condemning that type of religious view, but there is no question that this is what the fool was discussing here. And not only is he saying to her, well, if you know, if you believe he's in a better place, then what are you freaking out about? But he's also saying he's gone and it's foolish to be one foot in the grave with your brother when really you should be thinking about how his soul is in heaven and that's where you should be thinking about him and thinking about your life on earth here it's just amazing and then the fact that he uses this religious argument in front of malvolio has to irk malvolio just no no end so Let's talk about Malvolio, shall we, for a minute? And then then we will get into Olivia a little bit more in depth. But Malvolio's name means evil one. And as it gets on a, a little bit farther here, we'll explore kind of what that means. But he is her steward. And it is basically his job to be a killjoy. It's his job to count the beans. It's his job to pay the servants it's his job to make sure that everything runs smoothly and here his lady who is somebody that he probably watched grow up because we get the feeling that he's been there a long time that he probably served her brother and her father he may not be a lot older than her but I get the feeling and and I think often he's cast as being quite a bit older how about you two how do you how do you cast Malvolio usually? Well, our Malvolio was actually significantly younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that uh, how did that play out? Did it make him feel just sort of like a little more impetuous or like, oh, he just doesn't know any better? No, 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 not at all. He was, I mean, he his Malvolio was so very sure of himself that if anything, he was a very, he was very persnickety. Mm-hmm. And what about you, John? How how did you cast Malvolio? Um, I've gotten it uh, wrong, and I've gotten it, <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've lucked into it going amazingly right. But it, it was entirely about the actor mm-hmm. uh, being such a deep performer. And to, to that end, so there's some prerequisites for Malvolio. You, there's all the functions of the play, and some of these wonderful self-aggrandizing and self-enamored moments that we get where he's got to really be able to sell and deliver the comedy in this stuffy would-be aristocratic package that's just this this preening this peacock that's tinged with 
a little too much age and and or desperation you know possibly but there's the test for malvolio is the is sertopus so assuming that you've got your big your big things covered that you've got someone that can handle the the pomp and the dour demeanor the verbal back and forth and can conjure an air of authority that is needed to run the household, but demure still and fawn over Olivia with that sickening, cloying thing, you know, mm-hmm. that he's got. But when we get to Sir Topas later in, in one of these big machinations that happen, there's, an, there's a desperate and legitimately, I think, when it's effective, scared quality, you know, mm-hmm. that comes and then that is then transformed into what could be a, just a huge note at the end of the show mm-hmm. for what happens with him and that that crescendo there that rising thing at the end so it's really a role for your you know they always see that like you follow the path of the roles as an actor in Shakespeare and so Malvolio is definitely one of those that I'm looking forward to getting to it's at, at some point to just to try to to dig into and I, I the last time I but just because the depths are there yes because it's there they really are there it's so much fun so much I mean it just these these incredibly foolish moments of you know looking at how grand he be his own reflection and you know when he's well, we'll pondering get to those. yeah yes we'll get and to all those. of these we'll kinds to... of things yeah but yeah. but those depths are uh mm-hmm. i think any actor you know as we get older we're looking forward to dipping our toe in that totally do, makes you know? sense like, i'm not even an actor and i would love to try to play malvolio sometime because it looks like so much fun it, we had an all-female production and so i gave my actors for the most part a choice of how they wanted to play the roles whether they wanted to play them as male or female or non-binary and our malvolio wanted to be a malvolia which was fine but then i asked our uncle toby to become aunt toby because i did not want malvolia's love for olivia to be a condemnation of same-sex love because if you just have wow that's incredibly complex that is a lot (laughs) no i'm just in terms of the uh, in -hmm. addition to what's already going on with the scenes that's so much to and i find i'm getting more sensitive to this as i get older you know someone that would absolutely inflict a just like a huge (laughs) huge paint swath of an artistic vision on something but that is a lot to keep in mind the dynamics so completely change with the female male because they're so important to the characters right he so very much wants to be the lord of the manor and with Mm -hmm. his you know wife by his side and this and this and all these kinds of things you know it's so wow that's a lot so how did you do so how'd that work out it worked great It was adorable. It was it was such a fantastic cast. And so much of it in that case relied on my Aunt Toby being able to carry it off and on my Toby and my Mariah being comfortable with each other in that kind of relationship. And I'm in Portland, Oregon. And so finding female and non-binary actors who were comfortable with that kind of presentation was like falling off a log and they were all (laughs) so excited and let me tell you if you want to see some talented enthusiastic actors cast an all-female production of any Shakespeare play because there's only like what 10 good roles for women in Shakespeare and how many of those are for women over the age of 20 
one, two, three, maybe. Queen got, Anne. Uh, Queen Anne, Judith. Queen Anne, uh, the nurse. The nurse. Depends on, you know. Lady M. Lady M, maybe. Maybe. Heck. Yeah. Uh, but Tamara. Tamara. A little Tamara action. You can play Beatrice as older. You can play. I mean, I've played Beatrice since Tommy, and I'm not 20. <laughs> Man, you can you absolutely, get right out of town. Absolutely. <laughs> My first big, big personally produced product, you know, personal directed, produced, conceived the whole, just like where I really dug into the entire thing. Young man, female Hamlet. And absolutely the most rewarding exploration. And, you know, because I, I find myself with like two schools of mind like i say like you're I'm, I'm putting this thing on it you know because it would be so amazing and and all of this and or in the case of the female hamlet oh my god it solves so many problems of, of the relationships in the shows and adds an extra level to it and to see a female energy that's got to do all of these avenging wonderful things that hamlet does is fantastic and then on the other hand constantly like am i inflicting this am i am i should we just do it you know but what are we going to just have 20 guys walking around bellowing at everyone for the same? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know, and, over and over again. So. And Sarah Bernhardt played Hamlet. So you're yeah. very good company. One one leg. If, one leg. If you're casting a, a female Hamlet. Hello, everyone. And uh, welcome back. We took a little break there. Unfortunately, we lost Katerina to a Wi-Fi and power outage. So it's just John, Bridget, and myself chatting about this second half of Act One, Scene Five. And uh, John had made a, a interesting point off mic that there's a lot of different uh, class status behaviors, performative behaviors on display yeah. in this scene. And would you expound upon that for us? Well, yeah, this is a, this is a really great, you know, opportunity. They always say, if you want to find out about a character, find out what everyone else is saying about them. Um, and then also look to them in their moments out of the limelight or when they're in unusual circumstances. And in this scene, um, it's an opportunity for us to view Malvolio and Sir Toby, for instance, also um, definitely coming up Cesario Viola as well, but um, specifically Malvolio and Toby in how they interact with the Olivia character and versus how they interact with their comrades, you know? And uh, it really gives you a sense of their inner motivation and, you know, we see, you know, Toby here, he's, um, it's kind of a fun moment and it's not something that, that classically has too many layers to it, but it, it does speak of like possible depths that he is always uh, drunk when he's mm -hmm. around Olivia, you know, that, and we, 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 or at least putting that or, or you know, et cetera, but we, when he's with Mariah, when he's with the fool, when he's with, and he's drunk through a lot of that as well. But his big scenes, um, he's definitely capable of, of a more in, uh, in touch, in depth interaction with the others. And this sort of seems to be mom, dad kind of, uh, you know, blitzed level coming home, you know, uh, after the party kind of drunk. And you know, it, it, look for those kind of moments with, with him. How does he react to authority? How does he react to status, you know? And the same with Malvolio here, you know, but kind of the opposite. Malvolio sort of, you know, likes to roll around in mm -hmm. that. And uh, especially when he's got, you know, mom there to 
back in and to see to see how terrible toby is in those moments he's yeah he's gone like cc well it's i literally never thought of us this until this moment um so thank you john but he's he presents toby presents as much more helpless with olivia 100 percent that's that is exactly it you're Thank you for articulating that. That is so correct. I need the help. I'm not a threat. Please don't. Right. You couldn't imagine kicking me right. out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, wow. Yeah. Which then sort of adds a whole layer to that when she charges in to stop the duel. Wish I'd wish wish you'd been around when I played her. That would have been helpful. <laughs> me too. <laughs> that definitely would have changed that entrance. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just have to do it again. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I wouldn't mind at all. Um, back circling back to that thought about status. Um, my dear friend and sort of Shakespeare mentor, uh, John Belomo, who was the person who originally steered our companies onto the original practices track, does a really great exercise with us where he has the company line up, self-selecting line up in order of status. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Um, I've never heard yeah. of that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it, it's very, it's interesting to see where people put themselves versus where other people put them. And at the end, you know, and there's a lot of moving around and sorting around. I mean, some of them, it's a little easier. The Duke and mm-hmm. Olivia are obviously hanging up, hanging out right. up at the top, but it's really interesting to watch everybody make those dynamic decisions and then at the end you know we the exercise doesn't stop until everybody's in agreement about where Mm. they are in line yeah it's 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 always a revelation so does toby always put himself near the top and then everybody shoves him towards the bottom (laughs) i mean we've only done it with obviously because we've only done each play once um (laughs) I think he was pretty firmly in the middle. It's an interesting sort of shift with him and Malvolio is always where mm-hmm. the interesting, you know, and where does the, where does Festy wind up? Because, you know, Festy sort of wanders so often in and out of the other, the, you know, the other households. Well, and, it, and it's also, is it social status, you know, or is it inner value and inner worth, right. you know, and that kind right. of thing, you know, is, is Hamlet at the top of the line because he's so, acute of you know philosophical right. mind or is he down there right. because he's just a person? Right. Yeah. yeah 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 that's so fun that's wonderful it's a lot of fun let's do that all day. <laughs> what about this podcast <laughs> Who's, uh, where we, uh... I'm, I'm gonna go to the back of the line over here <laughs> but when we're looking at that status stuff and it's a a super important subtext that's happening all throughout Twelfth Night. It's almost the theme of the play in a sense. It's certainly a strong theme of the play that because Twelfth Night is a tradition of carnival, which means that low status people get to be in charge and high status people have to do whatever the low status people tell them to. It's a switching of roles. And that is what Twelfth Night Feast was all about. And so in those situations, the fool always takes the role of the highest ranking member. So throughout this discussion, we're seeing references and callbacks to that because Festy comes in, he reads the room. This is Festy's time to be 
high status. And so when he's saying, take away the fool, gentlemen, it's less um, uh, obnoxious, <laughs> less offensive is probably the word I should use than it would be at any other time of year, because this is the time of year when he's in charge and Olivia is literally the official fool. So the fact that they're constantly playing with those nice. status and class distinctions throughout the play is very appropriate given the name and time of year and everything else that the play is held. And this kind of reverberates through all the characters, through every scene, and it also it does. There's a duplicity like throughout this, but everyone's pretending yes. to be something else. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing to really keep an eye out as we're going through this. You know, every single person is is pretty much, you know, pretending, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm not if either I'm a whole other person mm -hmm. or I'm a whole, you mm -hmm. know, different gender or or all of that. But also there's machinations and status and uh the court and with the letters are you kidding me i'm this and i'm this and uh, oh it's just everyone's pretending that's an except excellent antonio <laughs> except poor antonio and oh but we'll my get gosh, into him yeah. later maybe that maybe festy well festy no. is <laughs> pretending all the time the yeah <laughs> yeah he's kind of pretending and not pretending the whole time he poor he, is antonio. The, he is the next of, uh, came in from Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or something. <laughs> yeah, he's in the wrong place. I, I don't know. I, Romeo and Juliet is full of people uh, with false faces and pretending and everything else. I mean, you know, if you think about it, like that pivotal scene at the party, everybody's got a mask on. So there you go. But we won't go off in that tangent as tempting as it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, because of this permissive time when people could explore what status meant, where they were in the pecking order, it allows us to forgive Malvolio a little bit for him having pretensions of thinking that he could be as high a status as Olivia. This is the one time of year that he can kind of contemplate that without it being a mortal sin. Mm. That's an excellent point. Really, that it, 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 it's so important to keep that in mind because that this isn't just a random springing up of circumstances. That this is that we're kind of in a stew that that creates mm -hmm. these kinds of uh, even more intense versions of these moments. You know, that's a great point. That festival. That oh yeah. Spirit. I'm like, that's my next version, man. We're going Carnival next time. That would well, just fun. remember that Carnival and Twelfth Night are actually two different seasons. Or two different, oh, gotcha. The Twelfth Night. We're right. going full Twelfth, Twelfth Night for the Twelfth, Twelfth Night. Th there you go. Twelfth Night is the end of Christmas. Carnival is the beginning of Lent. Beginning but of Lent. But sometimes... Gotcha. Well, we'll probably avoid but the But sometimes they, those were closer to each other than they are now. So um, Twelfth Night would have been January 6th. And it would have been the feast before Lent. And so mm. this is when um, it was like kind of a medieval Mardi Gras, like, you know, mm -hmm. those things, they get all messed up. But um, and we also know that this play takes place over technically three months. We find that out at the end of the play. So I'm saying so, so, so a lot. I better get a needle in uh, 
Well, and what, what you were saying with um, Malvolio, uh, with him being kind of sympathetic almost, I think that's that's really a true mm-hmm. thing here. And as, we, as you go along in the circumstances, dear listeners, get more intense for <laughs> Malvolio, um, you know, l- listen to yourself and, and see uh, how, do you, how do you feel? Shakespeare's doing something really specific and interesting there. He's always been a master giving you the other side of, of the classic mm-hmm. villain role or, you know, the, that kind of thing. Um, you know, you, if you think even about, you know, like your, you know, errands and uh, some of your more nefarious, you know, moments in the canon, um, but they all are colored with this, this, there's this inner struggle, this nobility mm-hmm. or this other th- tragedy or something to it. And Malvolio definitely has his, uh, as it, moves along and all the seeds mm-hmm. are planted, you know, right mm-hmm. here with this mm-hmm. aristocratic uh, thing yeah. of his, man. And but I think he's a heartbreaker. Malvolio is the, the, if it, it, the way that the chords and the, the notes mm-hmm. play out at the end, his, that big thing from him sort of carries us in that final. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I won't say too much. Well, and <laughs> you know, ultimately, you know, history, he, he has his triumphs. So, uh, you know, if you look at what happened <laughs> in real life to Shakespeare's culture and to the fact that, you know, Shakespeare's plays were banished, made illegal for a hundred years, then you can see why it was a tangible threat to him and why he would make a villain out of the kinds of people that wanted to see his works banished and destroyed. And it is because of people like Malvolio that we don't have any Shakespeare ephemera, that we have none of his letters, his records, his notes, his library. We have none of that because it was all destroyed deliberately. Uh, The Bodleian Library got rid of every trace of Shakespeare that they had every script, every note, everything uh, in that hundred years after his death. And we would have a much richer record now. There would be no silly arguments about, you know, was Shakespeare a real person if it wasn't for people like Malvolio deliberately trying to erase who he was. And so that's partly why I get so angry you back up, Malvolio. Malvolio wouldn't do that. That's why I get so mad at people who claim that Shakespeare didn't George, write his plays. Poetry. I, I get. No, I'm with you on the, the because it's it's negating his very person. It's the it's you know appropriation on a very white level. Don't, you know? Don't get me wrong. It's nothing like appropriating, uh, you know, oppressed cultures or anything like that. But it is actual erasure of an artist to try to claim that somebody else besides Shakespeare <laughs> wrote this stuff. So that's my little rant about that. Well, who, who wrote Bacon? You know, yeah. there's always the, you know, <laughs> in like, you know, or who wrote yeah. Debbie or whatever. Yeah. You know, like this, yeah, okay. So. Although, I, you know, you always got to love the Elizabeth yeah. one. Right. Yeah. That'd be great. In all, of, it was in all her free in time. In all her free time, exactly. Yeah. She Spanish yeah. Armada and you know yeah. what, fairies. <laughs> Tell them all to wait. Right. 
I'm busy. <laughs> la, 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 la. I'm going to go play pretend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go write uh, plays that are vaguely critical of me and hope everybody laughs. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> she was known for her self-effacing. Oh, yes. So much so. Yeah. Okay. So we've come to the point in the scene where Olivia, Olivia is ready Viola. to meet Cesario Viola. And this is, you know, clearly a pivotal scene here where two of the main characters finally meet. They've been talking about each other. Other people have been talking about those characters to them. And now here they are. So Bridget, as our resident mm. Olivia... Uh, how did Olivia feel, how did it feel to come into this scene as Olivia? Your uncle is drunk again, Malvolio is being a jerk, Festi is being a jerk, but at least he's funny, and Mariah is practically invisible to you because she just does for you what whatever you need, and yet somehow you have to show mourning mm. at the same time. Um, for me, it, the thing about Olivia is that she, with the exception of, with the re revelation of the exception of Toby mm -hmm. that we just discovered, mm -hmm. um, she sees people for fairly clearly. Um, but she's not used to being seen, clearly. Mm. Um, Festy sees her to a certain extent, but it's also his job. Mm -hmm. You know, she's she's paying him. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a line that he's not going to step over. Um, you know, and Malvolio, you know, is sick of self-love. Mm -hmm. um, but um, also gets the job done. Yes. Um you know, which in, to a certain extent allows her to stay in a state of mourning. Mm -hmm. She does not need to be as focused on the running of the household as she might have if if Melvoli wasn't there. Absolutely. He's kind of a shield for her. He's he's the bad mm -hmm. cop to her good cop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's, it's an important factor. You need somebody like that around, especially mm -hmm. if you're not going to get the respect that you should be getting because of your gender. Yes. Yes. Um, so I think she's, she very much knows Malvolio's personality, but she's also very accepting of his foibles mm -hmm. because um, of the services they render for her. She recognizes his value. And mm -hmm. that kind of makes me think about an interesting point, which is that Orsino, you know, just flops around Roiled in his emotions, completely self-obsessed, tells demands that people come closer, demands that they all go away, mm -hmm. you know, back and forth, back and forth. Nobody says boo, except Festy later. Mm -hmm. But Olivia, in deep mourning, her emotions are ridiculed, diminished. She's told she's overreacting. It's just such a profound insight to see there that 
difference in the kinds of emotions that men are allowed to have and the kinds of emotions that women are allowed to display publicly Mm -hmm. and to make decisions on. And we know that Shakespeare understood this because there's a whole discussion about it later between Viola and Orsino. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that we get to see Olivia. We know she's grieving and yet she still sails into this very complicated social situation, sizes it up immediately and Mm -hmm. does what needs to be done. Go look after my drunk cousin, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Okay, mm-hmm. Stuart, you know, see if you can make any sense out of what's happening at my front door. <laughs> she's very capable. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very aware in a way that Orsino doesn't have to no. be. No, no. He... Orsino's not a particularly active character. He has other people do for him. He does. He has people he can pay to be mm-hmm. active for him which he does constantly mm-hmm. and gets annoyed if it doesn't work, gets very angry mm-hmm. if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting and really speaks to perhaps an ongoing debate at the time, which is, was a woman ruler as capable as a male ruler, given that women were supposed to be more irrational, more emotional, everything else? This play makes it really clear certainly what Elizabeth wanted to hear. (laughs) Now, you know, we have no idea what Shakespeare believed. We have no idea what he thought. But certainly in this play, we see that a female ruler is uh, more capable, more rational than the male ruler that's a little bit even higher than her in status. Nonetheless, she's got Malvolio around to be her official male and to be her official jerk and so she sends him to the door and uh, he comes back describing Viola in some terms that are almost more confusing than they are clarifying yeah why does she say okay you know she's kind of famously not saying okay to anything that Orsino does at this point there what is it about that scene there, you know? And it's different uh, answer in, in every interpretation, but what makes the little descriptions and the little interactions that they have there uh, flip the switch in her head with, okay, I'll go, I'll talk to that one. Is it that he's young or is it that he's not a threat? It is, does, has his mother milk in him still or, you know? Well, I th- yeah, I think that part of it is just the novelty of him and the relatively um uh i'm sorry i just totally blanked on how to speak english (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the club darling (laughs) his his uh relative um inability to be harmful harmlessness that's the word i'm looking Mm -hmm. for his relative harmlessness did she she get that from malvolio's description i think so i mean she even says to him later you know we um we asked you here to to wonder at you, not to listen to you. I can't remember the exact. I, I hear line. what you're saying. I, she it, she indicates later that she was intrigued. I mm-hmm. tend to think of it as that Cesario has solved a riddle, like the riddle of the Sphinx. So she doesn't need any more women there. She doesn't want any men there. 
And somehow this person, this Cesario, has found the loophole here. Not male, not female. It's not clear. And the language that Malvolio uses is fairly coded, but it, it does imply that there's a eunuch or somebody who is sort of beyond gender, that gender binary. And because this is a play all about gender binary, you know, Cesario has found the key to mm. walk through. What's interesting here is we as we get into the scene with Viola and uh, Olivia, because the, you know, on the one hand, we have this kind of profound uh, exploration and introduction going on between the two of them in the, you know, uh, construct of Orsino's message and, and Cesario's duty. Um, but at the same time, we, we can't ever forget there's that broad tack that Shakespeare's, he's playing both simultaneously. You know, this is a, a, a guy playing mm -hmm. a woman in Olivia's case, and then a guy playing a woman playing mm -hmm. a guy in Cesario's case. And uh, and there are some constructs in here. And see if it, you know, I, I would encourage the listener, and it's different for every show again, but to where, you know, where do you step one toe over onto this side and, mm -hmm. and one toe over on onto this side, you know, because you, you want to really hit those serenities of meaning and, and all those kinds of, of deep notes. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why uh, Viola says most radiant, exquisite and unmatchable beauty, dot, dot, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I, probably I, I might have played Olivia. Who knows who played <laughs> Olivia, right? I mean, not, you know, I mean, it's, I, I know certainly nowadays we tend to Helena Bonham Carter and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a ravishing Olivia. I have, I have no myself. doubt of that whatsoever. <laughs> no, I mean, not, not myself personally, but casting. <laughs> got it, got it. Got uh, sorry, you know, cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to build Orsino's muse, you know, and I, I'm just a sucker for that. But, um, but this is probably a dude and right, a corset and a wig and, a 14-year-old dude whose voice hasn't dropped yet. A 14-year-old Well, there is a fantastic modern production, um, the one with uh, where Mark Rylance plays Olivia. I've, I've seen it. I know every note of it. it is, you are so right. It's a genius Amazing. production. It's, it's just beautiful. Because Cesario needs to be the young, the young mm -hmm. unit, the young uh, one here. But we contra I think Olivia might be more comic in the original mm. than I than, or than we have the stomach for with our you know terrible depths of meaning and political uh, and hard and to say hard to yeah. say because we have to remember that Olivia would have been a stand-in for Elizabeth so how silly they made her look probably depended on who the audience was <laughs> I imagine gotcha. if it was Elizabeth, if <laughs> Elizabeth, I imagine if it was mm. Elizabeth, that Olivia would have been played with more dignity. Um, something else that I think we need to consider is that how we perform gender obviously has changed over the last 400 years. And there was a belief in Elizabethan times that if you wore the clothing of the and I'm speaking in very binary terms here, people, if you wore the clothing of the opposite gender, 
that you would become that gender. So if you wore women's clothes all day, every day, you would become a woman. And so there was a serious concern about the effeminization of men through their playing women in these plays. And that's one of the reasons why they only had young boys doing it. Now, obviously, you know, we can see that before you've developed all your secondary sexual characteristics, it may be easier for you to pass as a different gender than what you were assigned at birth. But it may have been a lot easier then to be convincingly another gender if large portions of your audience believed mm -hmm. all you needed to do was put on a dress. Well, and I'm thinking now, because I think it's even later here, uh, Zoya says, by, like, by my something, you, mm -hmm. you are fair. That Olivia is fair. Oh, you know, and Orsino is just so, so maybe I, maybe I need to walk that idea back. And I, I, again, it's not anything I've ever staged that way, but like that Rylance mm -hmm. one that you talk about, there was such wonderful broad wow. moments in it that you just never, you never see because we're all always wringing out the, uh, the delicacies of the, you know, uh, the love yes. stuff. But, um, but, you know, with Rylance, when Rylance and, and, uh, as Olivia having her big moment of falling in love, um, we're rooting for like a like a woman past her prime that is being flattered and that is and it's it's almost like a Disney comic. Well, see now, I did not. Of, but he does it. So I'm sorry. Well. I did not get that she was past her prime at all. Well, I, I just mean uh, not a waif. Like, I just meant... I not, didn't uh, even get that. Uh, like, honestly, like, um, the way Mark Rylance did it, I I mean, she could have been 20. She was doddering, you know. Though. She was like, uh, I didn't get that at all. I did not know. No? Not this a is bit. The, all right. Okay, everyone, <laughs> go, go watch the Rylance. We're going to have a little no, Bodhi thing down in the bottom fact, of this. Yeah, I, I suspect that maybe what you're, you might be responding to is uh, the makeup and the clothing. I didn't get any of that kind of elderly feeling from well, I, I didn't mean I didn't mean senior citizen, but I just meant not the Viola Cesario Orsino. Really? Sort of romantic energy. For me, Rylance's energy was much more aligned with, you know, Malfolio was more of an mm -hmm. ally, more of a, 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 you know, we're in the same for me. I mean, it, although they played him in this one very senior. You're right. They did play him very senior in that one. But um, yeah. Interesting. Anyway, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 totally no, wrong, no. You're not. But... You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. <laughs> Nobody's wrong. Um, totally could be. None totally of us are, are wrong here. But I think that, uh, you know, perhaps the way that I saw Mark Rylance's Olivia as a woman in, I'm a woman in my fifties and I did not see anything in there that indicated that she was over the age of 25. <laughs> uh, I just really, 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 I saw nothing in there. I would, cause this is very doddering and it's, it's very old timey and it's very, it's very funny. And I, I do it's not really see the daughtering. Now he did practice for that role 
a, a very interesting kind of walk. And uh, Bridget, have you seen that? episode i i have not actually oh my gosh i cannot recommend it enough it's worth renting he does this this he does this it's almost an asian it's it's the old-fashioned way of walking before we had modern shoes Mm. people used to walk toe first everybody walked toe first and if you are barefoot or have soft-soled shoes, you will probably start walking toe first too, because as you put the, the ball of your foot is fairly sensitive. And so it will feel any irregular, any irregularities in the next step, any, you know, pebbles, anything like that. And so then you tread more carefully. It's also incredibly toning to your legs and calves. Like I tried having everybody do it for this production, this kind of toe first, because we were going with a a medieval theme. We all had like shin splints, like within a few days, it is really different kind of muscles. And quite honestly, I think it's a healthier way to walk. I think this kind of clod hopping walk we do heel first is probably bad for our backs and our posture and everything else. So if you are a toe walker, stick with it. You're you're probably going to have stronger backs than the rest of us. But Mark Rylance learned that particular kind of walking style. And as a result, he appears to just kind of glide across the floor it, it's he's incredibly graceful so honest like now i gotta watch it again because as far as i'm concerned like he's one of the most graceful people i've ever seen on stage like the opposite of doddering to me you know it's, i got you you mean uh, yeah i i i think i mean his demeanor I, can i suggest a know? different adjective maybe we're looking at twittery instead yeah. of doddery like fluttery. Da- does daughter does daughter seem like demeaning? Daughter daughtery is old. It's it's like a yeah, daughter. I you know if you go look at a clip, it's uh, 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 I'm gonna play. Can I we can we play a clip? We can't because it's the okay, it's cool. the RSC and the BBC and they you know they get go crazy if you show their stuff outside of England they go nuts. Yeah, but, <laughs> but well, there are clips Ryan, on Ryan there like are clips on YouTube. You do not have to watch the whole thing. Just type in uh, Mark Rylance Twelfth Night in your video feed and you will get to see him. Uh, just doing some beautiful, beautiful work. And also beautiful, absolutely the entire cast work. is men because it was cast mm-hmm. in the more traditional, you know, original practice of the time. And the Mariah is wonderful. Uh, the Mariah is clearly older than Olivia to my eyes. Um, she and Toby and Aggie Cheek all much older than Olivia. Yeah, you cheek very, mm-hmm. very much older mm-hmm. He's, than usual and, in this. Uh, yeah, it was great. Job. All right. Anyway, uh, so as we finally get to see Viola and Olivia interact, and Olivia, who is tired of taking shit, huh. uh, really, you know, as she says very clearly, I just let you in here because I just wondered basically who would be brave enough to talk shit to my steward. I heard you were saucy at my gates and Mm -hmm. it can't be too many people that will openly try to outmaneuver Malvolio when they have absolutely no standing. It's just some guy at the gate from a household that, that 
he knows Olivia doesn't want anything to do with, and still he keeps saying, oh, yes, I knew she was asleep. That's why I'm here. Oh, she's ill. Oh, yes, well, I knew that. That's why I'm here, is basically what Malvolio reports back. And then Viola Cesario comes in. He sees both Mariah and Olivia, doesn't know which one is which. And so Olivia and Mariah have a little fun with Viola where, you know, they kind of tease him. And then finally, Olivia relents and says, okay, it's me. I'm Olivia. All right, go ahead. Tell me what you're going to Sure, Mariah. Sure. Go, go away, Mariah. I will listen to this apparently harmless messenger for Morsino and um, you know I, I can dispose of him myself is basically a lot of stuff that goes unsaid there between Olivia and Mariah. Uh, Mariah is clearly not worried about Olivia's ability to handle Cesario. Nobody is worried about this and again this just furthers the idea that Cesario is completely non-threatening and has kind of slipped into this, uh, you know, this workaround, this hack, this gender hack that Viola Cesario has discovered. And, you know, we know as the audience that not only has Viola Cesario in presenting themselves as a eunuch kind of gotten past all these safeguards that Olivia had put up, but we also know that it's actually a woman. And so there isn't really any kind of trespass here. Olivia has not been betrayed at all. She has not had her vow or her wishes disrespected because it actually is a woman <laughs> who's come into her household. Uh, and again, I feel like that, again, supports Olivia as a true ruler, as somebody that God is kind of looking out for, even when she can't look out for herself. And Well, you like Olivia. I, I love everyone. <laughs> you love of Olivia. Course. I love them. I love them all you know, except it, it, Malvolio. <laughs> oh, see, and I love Malvolio. I can't. I uh, can't. I just. I. <laughs> but how how game is Olivia here? Do, do, you, do you guys ever get a sense there that Olivia is? Too? I think, having played her, <laughs> that um, she there are three moments where she falls in love mm -hmm. with Cesario mm -hmm. in the scene, and the first one is um, when he refuses to speak until they're alone. Mm. Yet you begin rudely, what are you? What would you? Is the first time and why, that she starts to fall. Why do you think that that would? Because she is not used to being challenged. Mm -hmm. She's not used to being seen as a person instead of as a figurehead or as um, an employer or as uh, a mark in Toby's case. Mm -hmm. Um, this is a person who is meeting her as an equal, and she is not used to that. Mm -hmm. She is either used to Orsino trying to bully her into what he wants, mm -hmm. or the people in her household using her to achieve their own Cajoling ends. Cajoling or bullying, as, and mm -hmm. 
this is in a case where this human being is just saying, look, just, I just want to talk to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's that before Mariah even leaves, she has started to fall in love. And, okay. So where, where Mario. do you feel like the second point is? The second point is when he convinces her to unveil mm -hmm. and instead of, um, giving her false flattery, <clears throat> excuse me, he's, he's as excellently done if God did all. All right, now let's go into that because I love that. And this is where I think a lot of us really see the, the woman, Viola, coming through Cesario because that is a very feminine comment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh? I don't know. I don't know. This is wonderful having this conversation because I'm I'm so just falling into a typical male point of view. Here. Yeah, I mean, this never happens to me. This is great. I, I imagine um, that happens you to you a lot, dear, but it's okay. <laughs> but there's there's right. also almost an aspect of those awful pickup artists, mm -hmm. right? Where that whole like the, the whole, whole nagging scam of the that is to make thing. them. Yeah. Yeah. And the nagging is where somebody who's attracted to somebody else deliberately cuts them down in order to make them feel more insecure and therefore theoretically an easier mark. It doesn't work, people. Not not with anybody emotionally healthy enough that you would, you know, want to do that to. It's very cruel. But but it also doesn't work here because mm -hmm. her response is, you know, oh, sir, I will not be so hard-hearted. Mm -hmm. Yes. I will give out diverse schedules of my beauty. And here you see that she is smart, that this is, mm -hmm. I feel like where Olivia really gets to strut her stuff intellectually. She has finally found mm. an intellectual mm -hmm. equal. And how sexy is that? Absolutely. You are absolutely right. There is nothing nothing sexier and especially on stage than seeing someone mm -hmm. think man mm -hmm. and this this gal is and really in this scene the two of them we just and mm -hmm. oh, well i gotta hear number three <laughs> on olivia before well, just i get into before, that. Just, i just want to say that um in a sense it gives olivia a chance to boast about herself to show some self-confidence Mm -hmm. Because how often are women allowed to say, well, actually, yes, I really am just this beautiful naturally. And mm -hmm. Viola Cesario gives her that opportunity to say that. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not something that you hear from a man. Like, you know, as, as a female presenting person, that if a man compliments the way you look, you're supposed to say, oh, gosh, oh, thanks. No, I'm, you know, this is just, I'm just blah, 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 blah. Um, and that if you say, well, yes, thank you. I know I'm, I'm very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> they can get very. Well, then you're just being up. Yeah, they can get very angry. So not only does my, my, or, you know, yeah. Challenge. Not only does via well, because if the woman is secure in herself, then the person, regardless of gender, Bitch. who is trying mm -hmm. to um, 
attain status in order to feel like they are of value to the person that they are trying to attract, then yeah. if that person goes, oh, no, yeah, I, I know I'm, I know I'm attractive. And of course, you know, I'm attractive, you'd be blind not to see that. So I feel like Viola not only challenges her, but then supports Olivia and her self-esteem by going, yeah, you, you are really beautiful. Okay, what's the third time, Bridget? The third time is the Willow Cabin Oh, speech. my gosh. Because yeah. up until yeah. then, Viola has mm -hmm. been reciting Orsino's words. Mm -hmm. And here, Cesario does not. Cesario speaks love. And it's not, you know, because the whole speech that Olivia has before that is this list of all of the, you know, yes, I know that he's rich. I know that he's handsome. Mm -hmm. I know that he's well-placed. I, and I still don't love him. And he still won't fucking listen to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and... And you know that great cry out. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and so, you know, that that you might do much is... Mm -hmm. Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, we had our viola sing that, and mm. it still gives me chills to listen to it. And again, I, you know, all you out there, you don't have to have viola sing that. It's fine. It's totally fine. To, you know, but I felt like it really added a lot of emotional weight to it, just because mm. our singer was able. You can put so much emotion into a song that it can be difficult to put just in regular prose or verse and then she has that great line after you might do much <laughs> what is your parentage and mm -hmm. we know as a faux elizabethan audience that this is like practically a proposal of marriage at this point it's kind of mm -hmm. like you know you meet somebody cute at a bar and you go uh so uh 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 you know, how, how much money do you have saved to buy a house? I mean, it's that kind of a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, can, can I ask here yeah. with Olivia? So for, there's a little bit of a, you know, she says, I cannot love mm -hmm. it. I cannot, you know, well, you, uh, not to spoil anything, but, um, uh, Orsino's around in the end, as is Olivia, and we'll just let you find out what happens. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the, the the question of can or cannot is answered. Mm -hmm. We'll put it that way. And um, it does not, it has never seemed out of the sphere of possibility in Olivia's mind that she would end up here. You know, she's got this duty, um, this this morning and this kind of thing. There's a reason why it's, it's like what this guy at the gate She's looking for that little, I mean, I, I constantly think of like Lady Macbeth, you know, having to be in the castle and they're out doing the wars forever. And, you know, so much to the point that she is just like, I mean, just sitting there, you know, mm -hmm. the entire time. And it's got to be a lot of that for Olivia, you know, um, that same kind of thing. And, she, you know, going through every possible permutation of this thing with Dorsino, the only bachelor, you know, on the island, it's not whatever, Aggie cheek or something. Mm. Um is it completely out of, of the sphere of possibility that in her mind that she would end up with uh, Orsino? Because I, I do feel this little game quality 
there with her, you know, when, when she's um, asking for, you know, with that list, that, uh, of, it, it does buck her up what uh, Cesario does, but the mm-hmm. list of her features and this kind of thing, she's looking for more, mm-hmm. uh, she's looking for better wooing, mm-hmm. better, you know, give me something that's interesting, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And um, as we get to the, um, the the second list right after that of, of Orsino's qualities, mm-hmm. it seems excessive uh if it doesn't have some sort of toe in in something meaningful um or is that just me or it's it's you know it's all of these things yet i i I suppose in virtuous know him noble of great estate of fresh and stainless youth in voices well divulged free learned and valiant and in dimension and the shape of nature a gracious person these are all of the things that i olivia countess I, i'm supposed I to totally fall be. in love with and oh yeah, it, thank you, got you no. i got yeah. you yeah 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 and he's got yeah. the, and he's got yeah. that and he's, he's got, got the house he's yeah, got yeah. the car he's got mm-hmm. the the whatever but he bores me utterly i i cannot spend my life with this man yeah well, thank God, because otherwise I just have everyone being in love with everyone. <laughs> I think she's she's made it really abundantly clear that she does not want to be Orsino, that she would rather be unmarried for the rest of her life than be mm-hmm. with Orsino. Like, she mm-hmm. does not yeah. want to do that. But as somebody who has had to explain why I was not attracted to somebody who was attracted to me, you have to show that you're a rational person. Oh, I just got to chill. That would have, because oh, <laughs> oh, you're you're uh, very articulate. That would be. Oh, That's a, <sighs> you have to show Sorry. that you're a rational person. You have to say that yes, you know, I see he has an income. Yes, I, I see that you like him. Yes, I see that you know he has a job and all of those things. I, I am rational. I, you know, it just isn't working for me if it's not there it's not there and women have to do that all the time all the time we have to justify our feelings we have to justify our choices we have to have a whole list ready to the point that like we will offer that list when nobody asked (laughs) and then we no, so, no, no, no. You, you are not me. by yeah. any means solely responsible for... <laughs> Fix it, John. Fix it. <laughs> for yeah. the performative yeah. gender requirements of the last few millennia. But, uh, yeah, there is... I don't think there are too many female-presenting people that would read that list and think, oh, Olivia has a soft spot for him. No, she is making it clear that, yeah, she's she's not an idiot. She just... She's not feeling it. And... You know, often men are not, from what I can tell, not put through that kind of scrutiny about their choices, about who they're attracted to. Uh, I think a lot of the time, the responsibility for a man being attracted to somebody else is put on the somebody else. It's the somebody else's fault that the man is attracted to them. And again, in, in Elizabethan times, and this is fascinating, which is going to get, you know, its own episode. But the way people thought love worked is that a daemon, which is kind of a, a supernatural essence, it's not evil, it's not good, but it's powerful. But a daemon 
left the object of your desire, entered through your eyes. See, this explains a lot. Through your eyes and bewitched you, cast a spell over you. And, you know, who can argue with that? Who has not seen somebody that was just incredibly attractive to us? And then we can't stop thinking about them every waking moment. We feel bewitched. We feel enchanted. And when did it happen? When we saw them. So clearly, you know, this magic is coming through our eyes and affecting our heart and our brains and, and everything else. And so, you know, here is... Olivia, who I, I could be wrong, I don't think has ever fallen so hard for someone before, because she has yeah, it's, it really seems zero right. defenses, <laughs> <laughs> has no clue how to handle it. And Bridget, if you, I love, um, there are so many beats in this one phrase of Olivia's, and it's um, where she says, um, get you to your Lord. Would you kindly read that to us with all the funny little switches and beats that she goes through there? <laughs> <laughs> get you to your Lord. I cannot love him. Let him send no more. Unless, perchance, you come to me again to tell me how he takes it. Fare you well. I thank you for your pains. Spend this for me. <laughs> so here she's like, get you to your Lord. Get the hell out of here. And then she's like, I, I, I cannot love him. Let him sin no more. And then she thinks, oh, God, uh, unless. <laughs> it's a pinball. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, unless maybe pain. you come back. Maybe that, that sort of. Yeah. yeah, and it's maybe it's, that's sort of a clue in on that daughtering thing that Rylance did. Uh, he did this so does. well, like the leave, go, stay, oh my god, and he was so flushed mm -hmm. and all that. Maybe, maybe that's that where I'm getting that be. from because she that really could be. And, the and then, here. unless perchance you come to me again, and then she realizes all of a sudden that she's sounding like desperate and in love with Cesario, and then she says, uh, just to tell me how he takes it. Here, um, yeah. uh, here, have some uh, gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, for me, for me, that unless perchance you come to me again ah. was um, very much. Wait, I'm not this. I'm not giving him any hope. Like, don't. Like, I want you to come back, but I don't want you to go to him and tell mm -hmm. him there's hope. So I agree. You come back, but you come back for me, not for I him. agree. I I think it's all those things, mm -hmm. and I think that we can all have those feelings in a split second and also mm -hmm. be fooling ourselves in the mm -hmm. process. So there are just so many beautiful layers to those lines. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's any no. wrong way to play them. <laughs> no, for me, once she fell, she just fell so hard. She didn't care about trying to be coy. She no longer cared about Cesario. trying to have her dignity or anything. No, no. At one point, and again, because the, you know, there's no blocking. We did it differently every mm -hmm. night. I mean, I would, uh, I would climb all over the viola. Oh, would you? Yeah. Like I would back, I would back her into corners. Uh -huh. I would, uh -huh. I would, you know, run my hands over her face. I would sit on her lap. I would just like I, every time that poor girl was on stage, I was chasing Aww. her. 
<laughs> well, so now the the next line that Olivia says, where mm-hmm. she she well, goes, is "What is your?" What you... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. This is, and for me again, this was like straight out to the um, audience, like. What is your parentage? Okay, now see, now there's the line where I feel like all of a sudden she's worried about her dignity. Yeah, yeah. She is, but this I. Is the, what did yeah, I? That that I can't I believe I said such that. Such yeah, I was yeah. such a dork. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and so, for me, she has enough self doubt and enough confusion about her feelings that. I I see her going in and out of that. And that is all about me because that's what happens to me <laughs> when I fall in love. I go overboard. I blurt shit out. I try to walk it back. I overthink it. I'm awake at night going, oh, my God, I can't believe I said, what is your parentage? What the hell must he think of me? Yeah. And mm-hmm. then coming straight out of though, straight out of that, oops. And then at the end of that, we get into what I was talking about in terms of love and enchantment coming in through the eyes where she says, Mm -hmm. methinks I feel this youth's perfections with an invisible and subtle stealth. Subtle is magical. Mm -hmm. Uh, To creep in at mine eyes. Mm -hmm. She's removed her veil something slipped right in her eyeballs yeah well and she's in the clutch Mm -hmm. you know this is the great thing about this this here and then her next uh speech that ends it uh coming up and it's this wonderful you know musically this scene is just so correct in its rhythms the way Mm -hmm. that it's written she peeks up here with this this you know you can feel her flush Mm -hmm. her fever and this new thing that she's dealing with you know that she hasn't dealt i'm i have goose flesh just talking about it and um and it, and it crescendos into this huge this uh, expression of it you know at, at, as we get to the end here but she's ping all, all over the place still. You as know, we you do know? when we're shocked and suddenly fall in love that quickly which i it's happened to me i i fell in love with my husband at first sight there's absolutely no question of that and i i <laughs> It was a rough few weeks while I came to terms with that. Uh, So I feel for Olivia very much in this situation. And then she calls Malvolio, and she has a great plan. (laughs) (laughs) As we all do when we're suddenly shocked and in love. She's just looking around for the nearest thing. Um, And so when you played Olivia... Did how was that scene for you with Malvolio? You're entrusting Malvolio with kind of embarrassing errand here. Mm-hmm. It was very much an attempt to save face, but still, I need him to go and catch this boy. Yes. Um, there was actually, we perform outside and, um, when there's the possibility of rain, we perform in a a pavilion, Mm -hmm. uh, a roofed pavilion. Mm -hmm. And it, um, it actually sort of goes out over a hill. And the, uh, so the guy who played Malvolio that night 
didn't again didn't tell me he was going to do it but when i called him he popped up inside <laughs> which then turned into this really great physical moment for us because you know i you know, run after that same peevish messenger the county's man he popped down and i had to like go and stop him mm. and bring him back and so it turned into this thing where he'd pop up he'd leave he'd pop up again and at the end i wound up pushing him off the end uh, so high malvolio yeah. was actually like shoving him out the window nice, nice. yeah which was awesome. it just it yeah it turned into this whole like real physical manifestation of her attempt to keep herself um, grounded in front of Malvolio, but just needing him to go. And she lies to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's something that she's used to doing? Because I don't get the impression that she lies a lot. She does not lie a lot, but I think she is very carefully guarded with her emotions in front of her household i think that's probably true so she is used to maintaining a certain distance mm -hmm. certainly, certainly Malvo. well even even, even mariah, mariah you know in so many of the mm -hmm. other plays and so many of the other comedies or even the tragedies there's moments with between the the female protagonist and her nurse or maidservant or helper or cousin or whatever where there's this conversation about the feelings, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, Amelia and Desdemona have that whole yes. scene together. Um, you know, Juliet takes the nurse into yes. her confidence, even with, you know, Beatrice and Much Ado, there's that great scene where, um, right before the wedding, where they're just teasing Beatrice mm -hmm. about Benedict mm -hmm. and she won't admit mm -hmm. it, but, you know, like, but Olivia never gets to have that moment of like, of female centering and groundedness with another woman except viola that's an excellent point i never realized that yeah, she's very alone except for viola yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. olivia is very yeah. alone she and, is man and mariah deceives her yeah. yeah toby deceives her they all they all deceive her so mm -hmm. she's right to be guarded and mm -hmm. to be fair you know the only person who does not deceive her is sebastian <laughs> You'll find out all about him later. Oh yeah. <laughs> but can she I, also um, doesn't give him a chance, <laughs> right? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. True. That's always the moment when your Olivia's are like, "Oh, I gotta be Olivia." They'd be like, "Okay, well then this scene happens. Let's just dive right in." I don't understand yeah, why anybody doesn't want. I can't Olivia. either. At least it's Olivia's play. Uh, totally. well, you know, I think it's Festus's uh, play, but that's can okay. I ask, <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah. Can uh can I ask if we can we talk about Viola sure. here for a second? Yeah, let's and, and, and Cesario. You know, just because we've got um such an example here from Olivia, but and also um Viola, we just Get this kind of brief interaction mm -hmm. from her in the in the mm -hmm. beginning, you know, with the captain. Mm -hmm. And there's something that is in her character, even though she's, I mean, it's it's an odd bucket of things mm -hmm. to have to play in just a few lines in that opening scene. My brother's mm -hmm. dead. Or, uh, I'm gonna go mm -hmm. be a eunuch. Uh, all of these, you know, mm -hmm. different things. And in the middle of that, the captain. Uh, 
is like uh, nobly giving her information about uh, and sees something in her character mm-hmm. that he wants to help her. Mm-hmm. We need to feel like, you know, that the captain uh, is responding to something real there. So she's got to have that in, in the midst of all that turmoil. Mm-hmm. Then the court and did not get many, I mean, reveals her love for Orsino in a couplet, basically, <laughs> or something, you know. As one does. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's just like, oh, yes, sir, you know, mm-hmm. sir, I love him. There, there you go. Um, and and now we're really getting a chance to see that faculty, that real true talent mm-hmm. of, of Viola's in here. And that and like you say, you're like you guys are saying, the two of them having this together is such an is such an important uh, thing. And it's interesting because her in terms of you know, these lines are all meant to be said. These things, you know, we all study them and mm-hmm. we all read them and talk about them and all this, but this is this is a theater thing you know mm. so sweet dear listeners if we're always talking talking about in terms of theater uh, you should be too uh, but um you know it's 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 weird to um have the the seeds for these possible this amount of expression to be planted there early on and to i i'm constantly and i don't know if it's a trick of, of just not having the the, the space in the ground plan for writing, but I'm always surprised by Viola in this scene. I always get a little shocked by, you know, her her utility and her her uh, uh, incredibly verbose, you know, the, all the bullets that she has in the gun here, because mm-hmm. it just seems to be coming out of nowhere. I, you know what I mean? I in hear terms what of you're saying. Of, I hear of, what you're saying. And her brilliance yeah. is definitely on display here. And it clearly impresses Olivia, too, who even Olivia thought was beyond impressing. Mm -hmm. And so again, although we may be impressed ourselves by the way Viola Cesario is responding in this situation, we are also directed in a sense by Olivia's response to Viola. Because if Mm -hmm. Olivia had been, you know, unimpressed by this, we would be unimpressed too. We would say, all right, you know, Mm -hmm. swing and a miss, Viola. But Mm -hmm. here we see that Viola really was a good choice for Orsino. And so then that raises Orsino up, actually, in our estimation, a little bit. Orsino was right. I don't want to give Orsino any credit. I don't. Ever. I, know. <laughs> I, know. I understand. Don't, don't I, understand. <laughs> I know. That's how I feel about Malvolio. But nonetheless, you know, what Orsino can't. I've got beard yeah. for all these guys. <laughs> what Orsino can do, apparently, is delegate well. And, you know, we've already kind of talked about how he's kind of passive. Well, it's like the mm-hmm. ring. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like the ring with Olivia. He's looking around. Oh, you're the pretty thing. We'll send you. Mm-hmm. We haven't sent that mm-hmm. yet. You know, the the you thing know. about Viola for me in this scene, and that ties, I think, back into the first scene mm-hmm. that we don't so much see in that second scene with Orsino, is how quick she is on her feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, she she washes up on shore. The only place that's safe for her is shut off to her, so she will wear her brother's clothes boom done off we go mm-hmm. um you know when she gets here and she's got all of this flowery bullshit <laughs> that orsino wrote and she memorized for him and she gets there and within seconds of meeting this woman she's like oh yeah this isn't gonna fly yeah 
I gotta, I gotta, I, I gotta, gotta you up know, my game off. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and then again in the next scene when, you know, Malvolio tracks her down and we won't, I won't give it away, but again, she's quick enough on her mm-hmm. feet to adapt instantly to what he's saying to mm-hmm. her and we're not, and to understand why it's being told to her in such a way. And we're not spoiling anything by saying that, yes, Malvolio does go look for right. Viola in the next scene. Right. The play does, does not end no, at the end of this. No, it does not. <laughs> and I kind of wonder, because Viola is clearly impressed by Olivia here. And yet Viola still has feelings for Orsino, clearly, and still is very mixed up because she's been asked to do this thing for Orsino. She wants to please Orsino, but if she succeeds at the thing, then she will lose Orsino forever. And yet Mm -hmm. I can't help but feel in this scene that she just is enjoying the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think she's enjoying not having to constantly tone police herself. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. when 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 a woman is pretending to be a man mm-hmm. in the company of men, she needs to negotiate that very differently than if she's pretending to be a man in the company of women. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much joy, you know, in mm-hmm. talking to people that are that have a similar rhythm, a similar uh, framework for discussion and you can just lose yourself in those conversations, which is what we mm-hmm. get to do here. <laughs> so I'm going to use that to wrap up this session. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, this is, you know, as our listeners have realized by now, a really pivotal scene, an incredibly <laughs> fun scene. It's almost mm. a play in itself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think you know could stand alone as a as a scene in any showcase that you might want to do. So, well, all of the major drivers of the plot are in this mm-hmm. scene. They are, and some of your your great money yes. lines. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we venture on to Act Two, Scene One, in the next episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye, bye, guys. <laughs>